Hey, welcome to the 66th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we've got Ross Novi, a friend of mine, uh, one of the first people I met when I moved to LA that helped me get one of my first paid directing gigs. He is a director, but he's also been a, the first AD on a lot of shows that we love. He was the first AD on the first season of Entourage. He's been on Arrested Development, on The Office. Uh, now he's on a show called Those Who Can't, and he's actually going to direct an episode of the show also. And we talked about a lot of interesting things. I mean, he's worked with pretty much every amazing comedy director that there is, and a lot of um, amazing actors. And he's gleaned a lot of really interesting information about directing TV from them. So we're going to get into it. But first, Oren. Yes. I've been dying to know, what have you been working on lately? Finally, you've asked me. Uh, Well, I've actually had a really busy past few weeks, as listeners might have guessed since we haven't (laughs) recorded any episodes. But I have directed... You know, I'm doing a lot of commercials type things. And with commercials, you get storyboards and you write a deck. You make a deck and you send it to them and you usually never hear back. But for some reason, I had four things in a row that I got the job. One of them, four things? Yeah, one of them ended up disappearing. Um, But what was interesting is that each one of those four things I got through a different source. and not not one of them was from the my like official commercial production company, <laughs> uh, but I got one from my friends that have a production company at Sawhorse. Sure. I got one from uh, another production company that I, I know the owners that I've, I'm on their roster. I'm kind of seeing this new trend where a lot of smaller production companies are just asking for non for directors, non-exclusive to, yeah, rosters, non-exclusive yeah. directors. You know, we were both we know someone at Herzog. That we both might be on that roster, so it's cool. I think it's a good trend, and it makes sense because when you were exclusively with one company, if they didn't get you any work, you just didn't make any money. It makes me nervous because if, you, like, ima- imagine there's a director who's just on a bunch of different rosters. These companies are all vying for the same jobs. It's like, does that ultimately mean that they're pitching against themselves? Like, are, that like they're going to be like, oh man, you know, Orin's really great for this. For this job, and then if the other company is like, "Oh man, we've got Orin," like I feel like that makes somebody look bad, and then they don't want to pitch you. And yeah, and I, I get problem. a little little head in my head about it. Yeah, that definitely is a problem, and I've brought it up because I have two companies that have pitched for similar things with me, and you know, and we all try to specialize in something. So if there's like a comedy action comedy thing. They'll right. both probably pitch me. Right, uh, got, we've got the guy, you know. Yeah, but and you want to encourage people to pitch you on it, obviously. Right. right. I'm still kind of fighting. Like I did Visit San Antonio, which was really fun. Um, I did Jeep, which was the biggest commercial I've done ever, and then I did Panasonic, which is for Latin America and a very specific client that I've done before. Right. And then the fourth one was going to be Xbox, but it was going to be like pre-roll ads. Oh, I don't think you told me about this one. No, that's the one that actually fell apart. But that, but I got. Pitched that job. Remember, I did this funnier die thing, like a Call of Duty mm-hmm. thing last year. The AD on that job was like, uh, contacted me out of the blue months later. He's like, Hey, Oren, man, what's up? It's Dylan. Like, I actually also produced for this commercial company, and I thought you might be good for this oh. job. So, you know, that's, I, I, I don't know. I, I know we keep talking about it, but it's like all about just meeting people, working with people. Showing people stuff, being active. I mean, even I think we've had listener questions about social media, but just like reminding people, like, hey, I just directed sure. this thing. 
not because you're showing off, but just because they might happen to be working on a project that is looking for a director that directs that right. type of thing. Yeah, so I think it, it's been a really good time. The the Jeep thing was cool. It was really cool. We shot on the Universal backlot. We shot on Disney Ranch. We had a you know a well known comedian that was the lead in it, and it, we had a giant crew, my biggest crew ever. There was like six people just like on the greens team, which is if yeah. you know what the greens department is, it's the people that bring trees and yeah. bushes and stuff. Having a greens department feels yeah. awesome in the first place. Having six people in the greens department, that's dope, man. Yeah, they're part the greens department is part of the art department and we were shooting like a New York street at Disney Ranch. They built this whole fake downtown New York area. But it doesn't have on, on Disney Ridge. Yeah, it's oh, new. They only that. built cool. it seven years ago. It's yeah. I'll show you what it looks like. But it um, <laughs> what <laughs> you said? It's, it's they built it seven years ago. Is what you said? Yeah. <laughs> well, because I actually shot there. I've shot Disney Ranch and have not seen it. <laughs> oh, I shot there more than seven years ago. Oh, funny. Um, and it used to be a Western town. Oh, I see. Like when you shoot New York Street, you have to bring your own street, your own. Trees, your own bushes, your own benches, your own trash cans, your own street lights, the sconces that stick out of the houses. Like you need, you know, 10 to 20 people to just make it look like a regular street. Right. Like, so yes, you do get to own the entire street, but imagine how much extra money you're spending to make it look like the real thing. Right, right. But it is kind of the perfect version. And like, I don't like that trash can there. Let's move that bench and let's arrange all the cars. Yeah. And even before that trash can is there, they're like, which trash can do you want, Oren? Right, right. Uh, I don't know. That one looks the that's silver a, that one? one's a little too gray, and the car is gray. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, but we also had you know like two condor cranes that are holding. Each crane is holding like a twenty foot by twenty foot. One holds like a diffusion frame, and the other one holds a solid. You know, just to mm-hmm. put make things in shadow. And you are still shooting these like medium shots of actors, and you're like, uh, we just don't have enough equipment to, you know, <laughs> make the entire street behind this person darker so you know it's crazy I mean you just run into all the same problems but I will say one cool thing is you know when you have like a 12 by 12 foot silk diffusion or something in a frame so we had like a 20 by 20 on this condor crane and they wanted to change it from a silk just to explain to people it's like um, you know it's like a piece of construction equipment effectively it's like a those big old cranes it's like a scissor lift it's the same sort of company like a genie lift but like it's literally a crane that extends out and then holds a giant, giant frame to diffuse light or block light. Like yeah, twenty saying. foot by twenty foot frame, and it They'll goes. They'll call up. them a, a fly swatter. Yeah, right, yeah. And the right. So the, the idea is that the farther you bring this frame from the earth, <laughs> the bigger the shadow it will cast. Right. Is, right? So, and that's a very fast way to to do that sort of stuff because it's on wheels and that's just like a guy with a joystick basically. Right. So if you want to put an entire car in nice uh, diffused light, you lift this thing above it. But when they want to change it from a 20 foot by 20 foot silk to a 20 foot by 20 foot solid. So a solid is just a, you know, creates a shadow, a silk diffuses light. Um, they bring it down and because our we have nine grips on the team, they all go they each have to only do three knots on the on this piece right. of fabric that's attached to the frame, instead of usually you have two guys that takes them like ten minutes to do like twenty knots each. These guys right. are like, you know, it's zip, like watching. Zip, zip. And yeah. because it's a, again, it's a joystick, so it's up and down. It's it's done so fast. Yeah, the speed at which like literally like like buildings are erected and things are moved is 
and trees are rearranged is pretty amazing. I feel like uh, the condor is like the piece of equipment now that it's in that category of like a techno crane or like sometimes even a f- like a fisher where it's like it's like oh you're in the big leagues now this is like the right tool for the for the job you know what I mean and oftentimes on a production that's a, just a tiny bit smaller you maybe have the budget or the crew or the time but you rarely have all three of those things to make it make sense. Right, because it's only like it's a thousand bucks, which is a lot of money, but not that much money. Yeah, but you need like you a have to have licensed like, operator, right? And you, like it can't be just a regular grip. And if you're shooting on a back lot, I mean, right? Yeah, so and it's like extra permits and blah blah blah, load bearing and yeah. Anyway, so yeah, the San Antonio spots I did were really fun too. But maybe I'll save talking about those. Uh, for yeah, maybe, next maybe when they come out. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it right now because I'm dying to hear what you've been working on lately. Yeah, boy. So I um since we last spoke, I think I've been traveling a lot. I've been doing a lot of the film festival stuff. And then um, you know, we always joke about when it rains it pours, right? Like you were doing four shoots in the last couple of weeks. I'm on a new series that uh, I don't think has technically been announced yet, so I can't talk about it too too much, but it's a mockumentary um for a digital platform that we talk about all the time. Um it's eight 22 minute episodes. So it's like a, it's like a big honking series. Um, and, and you're directing all of them. I'm directing all of them. Was there ever, because this happened to me with Miss 2059 last year, I was going to suggest that I split them with another mm-hmm. director. Was there ever that thought? Uh, we're cross boarding, which, as we'll talk about with Ross, uh, makes that extra complicated. Um, and Oftentimes you're on a like a day rate or something like that. It ends up being a little more expensive, so oftentimes producers don't want to do it. I was kind of eager to do it because, as we talk about all the time, with the role of director and showrunner kind of bleeds together on a job like this. And if you're making decisions that have ramifications across every single episode, whether that's casting or a look or a DP or whatever. It's nice to just keep that all consistent. Like I'm not fighting with anyone. I don't have to get additional approvals. And like, you know, there's a lot of different people in play. Like the show creator uh, is also starring, and you know, so there's a lot of different parties that you kind of need to keep in the loop. And like, the big, big top level decisions kind of need to be talked about at least with everyone. So I was happy to just like let it be me and let it be done. And I'm a control freak, right? Yeah, so, but I mean, dude, you're doing like almost 200 minutes of content. That's I'm doing like two I'm, features. I know, I know. I'm prepping two features right now. And I'm still recording a podcast, bro. And are you still? Are you thinking like, well, episode six is the one that's going to be really good. Episode you know, three is kind of like just some plot that we'll get through as fast as we can. I've been, um, well, a nice thing about it is that each episode is very distinct. It's like we've got the Vegas episode, we've got the music festival episode, you know, stuff like that. Are you so, going to shoot in Vegas? No, no. Well, TBD, we'll see. Cool. Or not cool? Pro- probably not. Cool, probably not, not cool. Yeah, cool, not cool. Um, I mean, it's okay. Like, I don't really like Vegas. There's a part of me that wants to go for like a little bit of like street exterior stuff, you know, because that mm-hmm. you can't really fake. Um, but well, are you doing casinos or hotels or what? It's like about the dance music scene, so it's a lot of interior clubs. Oh, okay. So like the that you have in LA that we have in LA, and like honestly, the difference between like a dance club in LA versus a dance club in Vegas is mostly the attire of the club goers. So we're dressing people up more for Vegas and letting them dress down for LA, basically. 
Right. Otherwise, it's kind of it's like you know CO2 and confetti and loud music and strobe oh, lights and stuff. I know. I'm a regular clubber. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, but so that's been really great. I've, I just have kind of been um, doing a lot of scripted stuff, which you know had been like the big goal for this year. So um, I'm really grateful to be in it. And like, I think you tease me about not being like stressed out in prep or something like this. And I'm like full on stressed out right now. Well, good. Yeah. Good stress is good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I like I try not to let it uh, get the best of me, but like I'm in the fire, as our friend Eben likes to say. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of just like on that streak of like answering questions, solving problems. You know, there's a lot to prep, and we are not, we are going to be launch critical. We are not going to be as prepped as I think I would like to be. You know, there will be a lot of game time decisions, and fortunately, I'm good at that. And it's a mockumentary, so like that's a forgiving sort of style of shooting. Right. Um, in that way, I, I uh, decided at the very beginning I wasn't going to shot list. I was going to make sure that there are that I know all of the beats. I'm going to beat list right and like know. Okay, don't miss this thing. Don't miss that insert. Don't miss this reaction. Think about your transitions. But even transitions are a little tricky on um, mockumentary because um, I wanted to feel very loose and very off the cup and like. The camera is unknowing. It doesn't. It, we're not predicting what's happening. We're not set up for things to happen. Right. One. I, so I created a philosophy list of like this is how the camera works and thinks, and we're using that to approach every scene basically. So oh, like cool. rules like the bigger the surprise, the less prepared the camera is for it. Things like right. that. The uh, the longer the lens, the less present the characters are, or the less aware of the camera the characters are. So like a nice wide, you know, which was most of what we'll be shooting actually. The characters know that they're on camera, they can regard the camera, they can toss it a look, they can be embarrassed in front of it, things like that. Oh, that makes sense. I, mean, I haven't thought about this before, but it does seem to make sense that you would have more transitions into a scene than mm-hmm. out of a scene. And we'll have some cool scene transitions, but they won't be um, match cuts or like we'll do pre-lapse and things like that. But they won't be as uh, elegant as like you would want a kind of more studio stylized sort of piece to to be, you know, right. because you don't want the planning to be evident, basically. Right. Well, cool. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad we're both busy. Yeah. Bad for our listeners. Good for our wives. <laughs> Gen- <laughs> genuinely sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. Well, let's get into it with Ross. Um, okay, cool. So, hey, we got Ross Novi here in the house. Hey, Ross. How you doing? Good to be here. Good. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, Ross was one of the first people I met when I moved to L.A. He was directing a bunch of stuff for this company called Fremantle. Kind of cell phone videos, actually, right? Yeah, that was a specific thing. There were videos made for the phone. There was no internet oh. crossover. Yeah, it was, it was like just... pre-YouTube, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it was... The YouTube where people were just posting for themselves, but there were no channels or anything. So we made, we had to think about how they would display on the phone. Mm-hmm. We had to shoot them very close. That was the intention. Right. And um, the other thing, the intention we had was how do we make as many of them as easily as possible mm-hmm. uh, so we can make some measure of money because it was like $500 a clip. Right. <laughs> right. So let's do one person talking right to camera 
we'll write a minute thing and you, you know. guys kind of invented like that format. Um, <laughs> I think like well, sorry, just to finish your intro, he, he's also a, a first AD on a million shows you've heard of, The Office, Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Casual, Arrested Development, Arrested Development. Um, and others. What are what are some other entourage for a season? And then that was too much to deal with. Superstore currently. Uh, those oh, cool. who can't. Um, entourage was too much to deal with. Yeah, it was a tough. I only was did the it first Jeremy season. Piven just trying to sleep with you all the time? He wasn't even the worst thing. So he was a, a gentle, gentle man. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, anyway, but so so when I met Ross, he I knew him as a director. He was doing these short form things and. You're actually like a really good example for our listeners uh, because you, I had made videos and maybe I showed you some of them and I was just doing stuff on YouTube and you were like, hey, you know, I'll hook you up with these people that I'm making videos for. And I think that might have been like one of my first paying directing jobs. Well, that makes me happy. I don't know if I, I knew my full role. Yeah. I feel like I owed a percentage even. Well, no, my very first one was a CPR training video that my aunt got me. Um, <laughs> But I think the first like scripted like she's kind of still taking her fifteen percent though. It's really yeah. yeah so uh, and was that a comedy? The CPR video? Uh, <laughs> it was unintentionally. So Ross and our friend Jay Rondo were doing these uh, like minute. How long were the, the just a minute long? Right, and so you would get five hundred dollars a video. Yeah, so we do like ten in a day. Yeah. Oh, actually, I think like maybe one of the first things you gave me to do was you were doing this show called White People Dancing. <laughs> yeah, that one, even we had a hard time getting, we delegated that out to you because. Right. I thought you were being nice our, to me, but you're no, really. No, absolutely. It, but I mean, in our vast, it's a cell phone empire. We couldn't do everything at all times. And then did you stage them? Because I know yeah. one of our other friends, because it was impossible. Who was filming at every event getting good footage? Right. The premise behind the show was that like <laughs> white people are really funny dancers, like at weddings and stuff. Sure. And so uh, the literally this show was like each episode was just like 30 seconds of like a white person doing like a ridiculous dance. And you were like, hey, we'll give you like a hundred bucks a clip or something. For each person you find, hey. so I like had my brother. I like those margins, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had my little brother who was in high school. I was like, dude, just invite all your friends over and just like That's put right. some music on, and start dancing. I'll give you guys fifty dollars for each person that uh, you know that's dancing. And I, I think I got like three clips in or something. It was great. It felt like we were such mini big shots because we sure. could get everyone working. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's you're paying other people and we're right, paying. Right. And we, we were trying to do this mini studio of, of these crappy <laughs> half-assed ideas. Um, one thing, one of our best ideas, which they were never on board with, but I still think was one of our best, was a dance a day, which we had this guy Jay Rondo show you how to do different moves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the water sprinkler and the right. clown dance and all these things. And yeah. the amount of hits, like there's uh, the mashed potato or something he did, I, I'm trying to remember which one, <laughs> has the most views. And that's like people have learned how to dance from him. Right. But it's been lost in the sands of time a little bit. But if, sure. you, res- if you research it now, like that's the first Google result. I Is feel him. like there was a, that was kind of in the era when like there were how-to videos. There were whole websites. Well, Ask just, a Ninja was sure, like the ask, big ask hit. Ask a Ninja was a big one, but they like actual straight-up tutorial videos. And I remember going to like Vegas and like to like I want to call it 
blog world. <laughs> oh God, that's <laughs> terrible. Something like that. that. And uh, talking to these dudes who like definitely had like a website empire of how tos, and their number one was just like how to tie a tie. Right. right. It, and it was before that footage was all on YouTube, basically. Right. Yeah, it was great. We jumped in before you could really properly monetize anything. Right. Sure. So sure. it was a great time. That to... website, I'm sure, does not exist. <laughs> but I remember the Ask a Ninja guys, and we were, because we were at UTA when they had their digital division, and we went over, and they, I think they were there too, sure. and they were the big guys. And, yeah. yeah. And how'd you get with UTA? How'd you get signed? Um, I'm trying to think if we heard, I think they might, I might have just read. Um, that they had a division and then just contacted them and then they brought us in. And we ended up, I believe, getting our Sony Crackle deals. Mm-hmm. They set up a meeting. So we were able to do a treasure trail uh, for Super Deluxe, which was the old mm-hmm. yeah. site. Sure. And then we did. It's back, you know. I know. But, uh, but our things have lost. So many of our series, somehow the internet's permanent, but we can't but, find but our not, stuff. Not for Super Deluxe. Unless <laughs> no. the Maria Bramford showed us basically the only show that's oh, really? Super Deluxe. No, what about Brad, Brad Neely? Neely. Yeah, Brad Neely yeah, was yeah. the other one. He, he got some TV shows, actually. Yeah, right. And he's then like a Derek. Uh, yeah. yeah, Derek Waters. Waters. They, yeah. they had a thing, too. So, yeah. uh, but we did two shows for them. We did uh, this Treasure Trail Indiana Jones thing, and then we did Space is the Place. Which they didn't even air. <laughs> they yeah. Didn't air. I mean, we had so little money. We were shooting in a office complex mm-hmm. and then just green screening stuff and sure. having people act like robots. It was, I remember the guy visited us on set. He was just crestfallen <laughs> what, what we were doing. He just didn't have the heart to tell you that the website had folded already. <laughs> yeah. Just let, just, it, just let him finish. <laughs> just let him, he had these big aspirations. He was really like, he was a little bit of a nerdy dude. He was like, yeah. this is going to be awesome. And I'm sure I pitched the hell out of it. Yeah, yeah. And then you just see it's like there's this really fake guy going, I think I see monsters. You know, he's the <laughs> robot. It was terrible. Oh, yeah. I did three shows for them and the third one also never was aired because I mean I it was partially I think the show wasn't amazing but also Super Deluxe was like we're done yeah, yeah you could tell they were just <laughs> you guys are really making me nostalgic because like there was a period of time in Los Angeles where like internet video had hit and there were all these new companies and it was kind of electric right like yeah. like the Ask a Ninja guys are like around and like you know um, like a big success story and be, like was a Rever was a website where like people would mm-hmm. share like revenue streams and there was studio what was it called there were a bunch of different companies that just started up and were actually giving you money and we were kind of that at that age where it was like so exciting just to get paid a little bit of money you'd put it yeah. all on screen it would be incredible absolutely yeah. we did the rascal which was the 12 episodes or something for crackle and it mm-hmm. just it's the best feeling in the world because we got enough money where we could right. film at the mall. Right. Yeah. And I could have some. I remember running. you guys had a chase scene in the mall, and yeah. I was like, Ross, how did you do a chase scene at the mall? Yeah, was I mean, that stolen? And you're like, no, no we, no, we, we got we, a I don't know how they approved it because the scene <laughs> is someone running, guys running with guns, <laughs> shooting shoppers, trying to kill the guy. But the joke was that they don't care about collateral damage. Sure. So it's just shooting, shooting, shooting. People are dying everywhere in the mall. And do you own the mall or, or is it? We own the mall. Like, it was before it opened. Uh, so we just for it. like three hours. Yeah, yeah. And then our guy escapes around the corner. Gets a blowjob from someone <laughs> and then runs out. And Wait, did they the, read the script before you shot there? I don't know. I, no way. I don't know no, how this no way. was. No, no, no. I certainly yeah. didn't give him that. But it, you think like that's insane. Like why was that? <laughs> why was yeah. that allowed? You guys also shot at uh, Air Hollywood. Yeah, Ooh, that's funny. I'm I'm working on a, a show now that does some air stuff, mm-hmm. and Air Hollywood is like, oh boy, I wish we could afford them. 
Yeah, like so Air Hollywood, Air Hollywood is, is a, the expensive one. They have yeah. a bunch of fake air. They have a bunch of real airplanes there that are they've turned into sets. They have an airplane terminal. They have the jetway. <laughs> they have basically everything you need for any sort of airplane related scene. Well, right? LA filmmakers out there, a little tip. I just scouted today the Van Nuys flyaway bus stop. Mm-hmm. And it totally doubles for airports, no problem. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Have you guys shot there? No, no. I, I'll, I don't know why people don't shoot it constantly because it just it looks and feels exactly like That's an airport, good. but it's in Van Nuys and you can afford it. Oh, cool. Ontario Convention Center too. Oh. We shot LAX, but mm. it's out there. And it was LAX, so it was probably yeah, yeah. bigger. There's this place it's called, way out the zone, though. Right, so are you boarding it was people? Out of the so, zone. We yeah. had to sleep. But There's this place called Silver Dream Factory in Orange County. Also, I, they have an airplane. Uh, like a, a body, what do you yeah. call it? The mm-hmm. main part of an airplane? Fuselage. Yeah, yeah, fuselage. Yeah. I'm shooting Silver Dream this Friday. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one thing, because um, you work in locations as well? No, no, directing. Directing, okay. So, because um, one thing that working production is helpful is, you know, how did you get the mall? Sure. Well, yeah. you explain, well, I worked on these shows, and then you're able to allay people's fears, and mm-hmm. you know that you have an insurance cert. And right. you're just able to also call on like Air Hollywood. I had shot there before. Right, so now right. I'm going back and going, hey, can I do this thing for and you're saying, a day? Like, hey, remember me from these shows. I represent more business exactly. in the future. Yeah, I'm the help person organizing it and guiding it. So, you know, that's one thing. It sounds all easy and exciting and fun, but, um, you know, I know where to go in Griffith Park where not to be caught. Mm-hmm. And I know how not to be caught right. when I'm doing a scene of Amazon. Uh, villagers playing basketball, sure, you know, <laughs> which is hard to sneak, but I kind of know where to go and how to do it, and in a way that. As a first AD on these big, like TV shows, are you involved at all in locations? Yeah, actually, a lot. I mean, a lot of times we'll need to figure out a place, and it'll come down to where do we shoot that was works, uh, that makes sense, that's affordable. So it's all the time. If locations doesn't have a first lead, then we'll throw it in the hopper. So yeah. Really? Oh, oh yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, you now you're ading a lot, but you're also directing. Yeah. So um, um, I went back to ading. It's it sort of I used it as a good uh, got a sense of sure. peace, you yeah. know. And I happen to be very good at it. And actually, what's interesting is you know I'm a fantastic ad because I know how to exec produce and direct. <laughs> right, so I'm, sure. uh, it's one of the reasons I've been really successful and able to work. Because I understand sort of every yeah. part of the process now. Yeah, yeah. And I know I don't make the same political mistakes you make when you're younger. You don't mm-hmm. understand w- how hard it is to sell something, how mm-hmm. hard it is to write it, how mm-hmm. hard it is to cast it, you know, how to fight for things and when to know this is not my problem. So it's made right. me very good in that sense. Right. Um, and now I'm, I'm at, uh, directing, I'm directing a, an episode of Those Who Can't, and I'm directing again and and also I've directed some pilots I've tried to pitch you know the, the main thing I try and do is things we all do is just keep making stuff that you like to do because sure. otherwise but who knows where it's going to go but at least as if you're making it you're happy and you have something to show and that's right. the juice anyway. Would you ever go and just like write something and go shoot like a presentation just on your own dime? Yeah no we, we did that last year for a show that we haven't been able to sell, but we did a presentation. And then I'm writing another script that I I want to just shoot again, uh, sort of not thinking as much of where I would take it and just mm-hmm. make something I would like to do because that's uh, that always feels right. And that's always the best first step because if you really do something great, then you go, oh, this actually could go here or there. Right, right. 
spin it. Right. And those doors just kind of naturally They naturally open. open. I mean, yeah. really, a lot of our earlier stuff with my partner Jay, I mean, it was just stuff we just wanted to do, and then we were able to spin it. Right. And, then, and we got frustrated because the more you pitch, the more you start getting real mm-hmm. smart, and this will mm-hmm. be good for this and that. And then sure, you, sure. you kind of lose the plot a little bit. It's not yeah. as rewarding. Well, yeah, we talk about that all the time. Like Matt and I, we came up, I mean, through YouTube, making videos, making our own stuff. I mean, this podcast is called Just Shoot It. It's just about like making yeah. stuff. But, you know, at some point when you start getting paid for it, you're like, well, why would I just, why would I spend my money why, when you can try to I convince somebody it? else to yeah, yeah. spend their money on my thing? Well, and in fairness, it's also the amount of energy you know it takes. It, it's definitely, as I've gotten older, it's, it's harder to have the willful mm-hmm. forgetting, oh, I'll just do it. Well, just shoot it. But like, it's not just the shooting it. It's the <laughs> whole damn thing, which is fine, but I know what it's going to be. There's no illusions. Like, I right. know what it's going to take, right. and I know. So you just right. kind of, I'm more choosy about the shots I want to do for that. Because um, yeah. at this point, I'd rather call in some favors and really mm-hmm. make it look awesome than just, ah, it's a little sure. ramshackable. Who gives a shit? At least I right. got it done. Right. Well, and those favors that you're calling in, you know that they're finite. Right, because sure. all of the people that you're calling those favors in from, they're all real professionals. It's not like right. your unemployed roommate who's like down to make five hundred bucks. You exactly. Know? Yeah. yeah. So but I do think there's this problem. I mean, this is my biggest problem is every time I have an idea that I'm excited about one day, the next day I'm like, eh, I don't think it's that great. Or like I'll pitch it to one person and they'll they won't be excited by it. So I, I'll just give up. Like I never want to uh-huh. waste my time on something that's not a guaranteed hit, and that's not how you make hits. You know? No, not at all. I, I, and I have the same problem. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I try not to tell anyone anything anymore. I just <laughs> do it. But yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a problem, and I think that's I would guess it's a problem with uh, creativity and getting older. Is you're just you've seen all the choices, mm-hmm. you second guess more, and you're just more cautious as opposed to just. Shooting it and doing it and not caring, but right. there's a reason. But th- th- there are reasons why you develop like this. But it is fighting that and keeping that childish, just fucking around thing. Yeah, I always. Talk, I mean, I've been thinking about this, and I talk about it on the podcast all the time. But when I moved to LA, like I had no one to pitch to, no one that wanted to make a project with me, and I was had a million ideas. Yep. And now I have a million people that are like, bring something to me, we'll produce it. And I'm like, I just don't have any idea that I think is that good, that yeah. it has to be made, that the world needs to see, you know? And it's, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, no, and it's, so it's finding that inspiration in exposing to different things. I, you know, I've gotten into photography over the last couple of years, which is fun because it kind of pushes me to just sometimes I'll see like, oh, a tilt shift, that looks cool. Let me do something with mm-hmm. that. Or right, right. J- just you want to riff on That's something. a music video, right? Yeah, yeah, or, or just like to me, just trying to find an exercise. Let me do a scene, just jump in the line, just to see how much I can just deconstruct how we tell right. a scene right. and see what's effective and what's not. I haven't done that, but, but these are sure. things that seem more inspirational in a way to just challenge yourself because the idea of just shooting a normal scene of something. Right, when you shoot scenes every single day, it's I mean, like, all right, we get it. You know, right, and you've seen... Yeah, you I, do it constantly. I think Ross, yeah. is have, of all our guests, probably has the most experience of seeing, to some degree, how interchangeable directors are. <laughs> like yeah. on some yeah. TV shows, you could bring in an amazing director and like a director with no experience, and they might get you more or less a similar scene, or is that not true at all? Oh, I, well, it is, it is. Well, on television, television because... Um, you know, the actors know who they're playing. 
the writers are on set. You're usually already set up in terms of the look of the show. So really your job is a technical job just to get the coverage for the editors to cut it to the right. showrunners. Like, so it, it's really, and then you have the DP and the AD and they're just pushing along. And, you know, maybe you think of like a cool shot where you make sure a joke lands in a certain way. But I've worked with the Russo brothers and Paul Feig and I've worked sure. with first timers, you know, Sure. Was it a good written episode? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Like, yeah. Did yeah. it have a good balance of action in the storylines? Like that is going to have as much a big impact as whoever's doing it. Right, right. Which makes Charles Sweden. Yeah, fantastic guy. And there's so much they bring. But like you're saying, the drop off to him and. Right. Yeah. Um, well, and it's inappropriate. Like, say. Paul Feig is like, oh, I'm going to come in and pitch all of these new alts, right? Like, that wouldn't be appropriate for a schedule or for, like, the voice of a show or, like, you know, like, the thing that he maybe does best and is most famous for, having run successful television shows and directed a ton of movies, you still, it wouldn't be okay for him to really, like, put his mark on an episode of television. I mean, there's a few shows that allow you that latitude. When I watch Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad, like you get more visual things right, you can do. Right. But even then, it, that's their visual thing is you right, right, doing yeah. weird, crazy stuff. Yeah. So. It does seem to be a little disheartening when you are witnessing so many directors that are fighting so hard to more or less make the same thing, you know? Um, it makes you maybe realize. In terms think of about, getting TV slots and stuff? Mm-hmm. Or? No, in terms of like, uh, I mean, getting getting TV slots, but also on set, like really wanting to do a certain shot, and then they don't use it in the edit or something because it doesn't fit the show. Right. Like well, just kind of the realization. I could see how being an AD on all these big shows, you would be like, hmm, like this directing an episode that I'm fighting so hard to do might not be as cool as I might have used to think it was? Sure. I don't know. Or am I wrong on that? No, no. I, I, I actually really enjoy ADing uh, for a lot of reasons. The worst thing I hate about it is the word assistant directing because I just think sure, it just right. belittles it Can, in a way Do you mind, actually, real quick for our <laughs> listeners to just define what you think sure. an AD does? Yeah, I would call it like a set producer. But an assistant director is not the person who gets the coffee. That's the director's assistant. Assistant director, um, you take a script, you break it down into its pieces, and then you reorganize it into a schedule. That's the most efficient um, and smart, creatively way to shoot a, an episode or a movie or whatever it is. And then once we schedule it, then I run the set to make sure that it's run efficiently. Everyone knows what time to show up. Everyone knows what equipment we're using. Um, everyone knows what the director wants to see. If there's a, a parade, the director tells me what he or she wants to see, and then I'm the one who tells everyone when to come and sets it up and makes sure there's places for the elephants to go right. and has uh, tents the, for the, everything. And, and the marching I, band and blah, blah, blah. And then we yeah. do the whole thing. And I, I, a lot of times I'll even say action and, and we'll do it. And then I'll turn and say, hey, do you like that? Eh, let's do this. Okay, let's do it again. And then we do that. And I make sure we stay on budget and schedule and time and also direct the extras and uh, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a, a very intensive. You're very involved with every decision, which I love. Um, and you have to know, again, how to direct, how to edit. I mean, a lot of times if you're going to spend time on a shot like you're talking about, people have, oh, I want to do this long, mm-hmm. you right. know, steady cam shot. You know, it's funny is everyone, anytime anyone has a steady cam shot, they go, I want to do like a good fella shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, steady like, cam. Yeah, steady <laughs> cam. Sure, it's yeah. A, not every shot is good fellas. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a steady cam, you know. Right. Um, but you have to know like, well, is this a sensible use of time? Because is this ever going to make the cut in a 21 right. 
and a half minute episode of television. Usually it's not. And you're on the entire season. So like, right. you know, oftentimes better than the director does, right? Like you, you've seen what actually makes the edit over and over and over. Yeah, again. and I'll take notes while we're on set to myself. I'll write down like, I wonder if they're going to use this or mm -hmm. use this or that. And just so I can kind of better predict without clipping the wings of any director because your right, job is sure. to, you want to bring some new energy, but right. it's, uh, yeah. And do you watch the episodes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sometimes so you you're like, ah, oh, we spent three hours on that, and yeah. it's not. Hey, even. where's that stunt that yeah. we, <laughs> we spent right. all half right. a day sure, on? Right. You know. I mean, I, I think also, like TV has such a infrastructure that, like, it's. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's pretty rare for you to get too far down the line of like, oh, we all know we're not going to use this, but the director really wants to shoot it. Like that just doesn't get to happen. It's right? rare. It's yeah. rare. And, and, and the things that the director does get to do like that, they're fairly small decisions. Mm -hmm. Like right. uh, like uh, Superstore, which I work on, is a very doc style kind of show. Mm -hmm. But like, right. you know, if there's a real emotional moment, like maybe the guy will want to do a little pull out on a crane if it's the end of the yeah, episode. Yeah. That's not the style, but it's worth doing and... That'll probably make sure, it in. Right. But, but also there's a thing called a tone meeting where you talk with the writers right. and you, you really want to vet that stuff out because you're there to work for them. And are you at that meeting? Yes. The AD? Yeah. Who else is at that meeting? Uh, it's the writer of the episode, the showrunner, and then the director and me. Sometimes and, and producers will sit in, but usually not. No editor? No. Okay, interesting. And, you know, so you're, and you're in it just to kind of be the... Because you're part of... Setting the tone? Well, no. Inevitably, there'll be some decisions that happen in that meeting that will affect what we're going to shoot or how we're going to shoot it. So just, just sort of make sure that information gets to where it needs to go. I feel so stupid for not realizing this sooner, but I shadowed on Brooklyn Nine-Nine uh -huh. just this last season okay. with Victor Nelly Jr., who I'm okay. sure you've worked with a bunch of times. I, I haven't worked with him on oh. set. But, oh, really? But oh, he's so been on a bunch of the shows that I do. So sure, I know sure. him and we say hi. And yeah, yeah. So, he's, so he's great. He's great. He's so he's awesome. Fantastic. And I think... As an experienced guy, the thing that he kind of really taught me was like, oh, like knowing how to kind of layer the sort of stylistic pieces that we're talking about mm -hmm. into a way that will actually get used. Yeah. Because I'd be like, hey, Victor, like, wouldn't it be cool if maybe you did this or did this? And he'd be like, I've done that a hundred times and it always gets cut. Here's what I'm actually doing and here, you know, layering things in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, little more. transitions, yeah. Little, little bits of style that yeah. just give a little, uh, you know, momentum and impetus. So. So it's interesting. It's, it's definitely very different. And I've had times where I go, I don't know if I even need to direct television. Mm -hmm. Because, well, first of all, when I did my show, I remember there was a point. It was, a, it, was a, it was low budget, but still a normal TV show. And I remember sitting in an apartment complex where the owner had actually killed himself before we started shooting, and that's how it became available to us. But I'm sure that had nothing to do with the bad <laughs> karma we get. But, um, but we got a good deal. Uh, but I remember sitting on the floor and then like the DP setting up with a video camera. And I was like, this feels like I'm back in New Jersey as a 14 year old when I'd make videos in my living room. Sure. But there's like, f there's like 20 other people. Right. But it feels like I'm doing this. <laughs> it feels like I've moved laterally yeah, just yeah. across the country. <laughs> but uh, no, no, in terms of yeah. just directing TV in particular, it's just a very technical position. And it, in terms of if people are looking for that auteur theory and it being rewarding, it's unless you're doing a pilot or you're a producer director where you have mm -hmm. a long uh, standing imp impact, it, that's not where you're going to get it. 
Yeah. And uh, do you find that it's any different in like kind of more of the cable shows or shows maybe where there's a single director cross bordered across the entire thing? Or yeah, I mean, the, uh, I work on a show Casual, which definitely has more style. They, like uh, Jason Reitman's the executive producer, and their point of emphasis uh, is to let the director have a lot more latitude. Mm-hmm. Like they really let the director go. Now there's still certain parameters just because, sure. yeah. because it's going to be what it is. And yeah, I still have a schedule and all that. But they're more uh, rewarding. You don't have to get the same kind of shots you have to get in TV where the network might say, hey, could you have, can you cut a close-up of this? Right. You know, they don't have to worry about that. What are, I think, kind of something that I'm really interested in, and you've probably been asked many times before, but what are kind of the top things that you've learned from other directors? Yeah, like, you're, you're on set, you're watching a director, and you're like, oh, I really want to do that, or like, ooh, or top mistakes. Top I mistakes, think, yeah. Also a little bit of both. Well, I'll start with the mistakes because they stick out yeah. more in my head because a lot of the good stuff I've probably just inculcated and I'm not even aware of. But, but uh, you know, the biggest thing is just not connecting with your actors. Mm-hmm. And it sounds, maybe it sounds obvious, but I mean, you got to, especially in television, but in anything, you got to connect with that lead person and make them feel like they trust you and you're listening to them. And if they have suggestions... This is something in general with all of Hollywood. If a executive producer or a star has a suggestion, it's not a suggestion. You you do it. Just do it. Just don't right. think of it as a suggestion. Don't think of it as like a dialogue. You're just going to have to do it. Now, you don't have to use it. You can do what you want to right. if you're artful. Because, by the way, people understand, oh, yeah, let's do one and one for me. They understand that you're going to have editorial control. Sure, sure. But, but you at least have to play the game and... and and not in a suck-up kind of way, just in an accept that they mm-hmm. are the, the person, they are the show, they are the powerful person. Right. Oftentimes and, the executive producer, right? Yeah. 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 And, and so just do it. And that's what happens. And I had a weird experience actually being on the other side. So when I was executive producing my show, I was trying to not be that person who's just doing dictum. I was literally telling people, just... Tell me if you don't think that's a good idea. I don't right. want you to just do it. Seriously, just tell me. You're talking me. about the actors. In this case, it was just other, like it was a post-production. Or, or, but, but people would just do what you say because that's the best thing to do. Right. And in the end, it's the safest thing to do. Right, right. So it works on both sides. The point is just know who you're supposed to listen to. If your executive producer is sitting next to you, get, get another take this way. That's not where you go, you know what, I think it works out this way. I'm good. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. That's the fight you never want to have. The best thing, the best directors are not uh, insecure at all. Uh, that they make a point of saying, I don't care where the good ideas come from. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want to hear them from uh, the craft service guy, the grip girl, whatever. I want to hear it. Now, that might not always be the case. <laughs> but they, they at least understand that, that they want to be open to that. They want to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the directors I most enjoy working with, I can offer up pitches or ideas, and mm-hmm. I'm very uh, careful. You don't want to pitch right. too much. Because the fact is right. everyone wants to direct, everyone wants to give the ideas, and people have worked very hard and very long to get to that position where they get to make those choices. So mm-hmm. you don't bury them. I, I have a question, actually. In terms yeah. of um, people who decide whether or not, or who have influence on whether or not a director comes back, mm-hmm. Like, who are the people that you one would be surprised or that maybe other directors don't realize, you know? Well, um, 
obviously the obvious ones that do have an impact are the, you know, the executive producer of the show is sure. huge and um, the network is right. big as well. And that's, that's probably important. like 85, 90% of right. the influence, right? Um, but, you know, the, act, the actor, lead actor will have an issue. The producer, the line producer, mm-hmm. they definitely have an impact. And I've definitely had say in bringing people back right. the first AD because I'm right there. Right. So I see the real impact. I kind of know the real story of whether someone's good or not. Or Well, it uh, sounds like more like veto power. Like if someone's right. like, oh, we're thinking of having him back, and then you're like, well. That's a great way to put it, yeah. Just I, so you know. I vetoed more some... people than said, hey, I love this guy. Right, I, I right, would, right. That would be out of my place yeah, to, yeah. to pitch that. You know? But right. also, if you love that guy, the network probably loved that guy too. You know what I mean? Yeah, and right. I'm usually pretty well vetted at that point. Right. Yeah. So from you even being somewhat influential on how directors are getting hired, like have you, what have you learned about how to get a job as a director, aside from not being white and Jewish? Yeah, we were talking about how it's a good thing for the industry that diversity is on the upswing. It's, it's interesting as a white Jewish male that Hollywood used to be my playground, apparently. <laughs> Somehow missed that boat. But um, no, I mean, the way to become a director, I, I think the best way is still to have um, a, a film or a short film or something that shows off your unique sensibility because it'll help you get the shows that you want to do and it'll give you latitude within those shows a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Because if you go on working TV director, you're just expected to come in and do the job, which is great. But uh, the more that you can have a certain imprint, I, I think Quentin Tarantino did a, a while, a few years ago, maybe it was 10 years ago, he did like a Law and Order or something and they let mm-hmm. him just do it Tarantino I remember he style. did like Alias. Was that an Alias? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's an exception. But it, there are certain shows that you will just get more latitude and that's how you're going to be able to do something like Game of Thrones or, you know, mm-hmm. if you have a certain, certain thing that sticks out. Um, other than that... You know, you, you have a piece, a short film, a film, whatever, and then you get a manager, an agent, and then you meet, and then if, you know, if you're not white and male, then you have a pretty good shot right now of getting in. And if you're, if you're at, at all competent, interested, good, you, you should be able to get a shot, really. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities now with all the different uh, web and everything. Yeah. How would you describe your sensibilities? Like, your vo- what's your voice as a director? Yeah, I mean, I like I like... Comedy that's not afraid to be not grounded. I, I, I mm-hmm. love Andrew Tribeca. I don't know if that I would say yeah. that describes me, but I think that would be a blast to do. I think it's just super fun. Um, but obviously, I love the rest of development too. Where it, again, that's that's it gets absurd and it gets crazy. And I like mm-hmm. the ability to get crazy. You know, you start in a normal place, mm-hmm. and then you go in this unexpected place, and then maybe you finish back more normal. I'm less interested in stuff that's really grounded and very subtle just because I've seen that. It doesn't surprise me in comedy surprise. So that's why I like to see things going different places. Zig and zag a little. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is kind of, I mean, that that's how I would describe your voice. I mean, I feel like you lean into genre a lot and go. Yeah, like Sunny yeah. in Philly was also very fun for me too because mm-hmm. they'll take a thing, like let's get into training and they'll just take it to this ridiculous extreme and then end up in a new place. Right, but even your show The Rascal or even Secret Girlfriend, they are, you kind of pushed the limits to, of the story. It wasn't, yeah, yeah it wasn't the story's like a launching point. Subtle. And in fact, yeah. my favorite episode of Secret Girlfriend, the one that was most rewarding to me was it just became this, like one story led to another story to another story. It wasn't like a classic mm-hmm. setup and then the, the hero's journey and the chart. It was more just like how life is where you just kind of fall into this and sure. this and it's escalating and 
new position and you, you end up. You made the slacker of a uh, point of view, comedy yeah. central comedy. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And not all of them worked out that way, but I felt yeah. it was more rewarding and interesting to do that if it paid off. And I don't know if it did, but it was more interesting to me to try and break that, that expectation. Because uh, what's a bummer is having done a lot of shows, there's a lot of like jokes now that I'm, it's like the third time I'm doing, you know, mm-hmm. like a baby in a dumpster or like, <laughs> right, like right, there's sure. crazy things that you would expect, not expect to have seen this many times, but I'm like, okay, we're doing that bit again. Yeah, great. Let me call my baby guy yeah, or exa- my dumpster yeah, guy. Like, exactly. Yeah. I know where to shoot it. We've done yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, and sure. I picture yeah. myself with like a big cigar. I'm yeah, like, yeah. oh, sure, let's get up the baby. <laughs> and so you want to, it's hard to be shocking too, because I feel like that's been a way of comedy mm-hmm. for a while now also. So it's just trying to find new ways of doing right. it. Right. Well, I mean, you see like a master of none or a Louis or girls mm-hmm. that are shocking in not like in different ways. In, they're surprising. Maybe they're not surprising. shocking. Right. Exactly. And that's yeah. nice. Um, like they'll do in it, you know, I don't know, the master of none, like the first episode is just about how he's like never asked his parents anything about themselves, you know? Yeah. And it's just some, a topic you've just never really, it seems like too unimportant to mm-hmm. make an episode about, but right. he'll do it. You right. Know? Yeah. 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 Well, I hope, I, I feel like master of none is a perfect example of like, I feel like we're into this era of like almost a tour TV, right? Mm-hmm. Where like a showrunner. Yes. And uh, and hopefully a director, if we're lucky, kind of kind of all coalesce into like a shorter season, right? Like we're, that's part of the whole potential or um, the writer strike that didn't end up happening. But like because those seasons are getting shorter, but I think the result of that is that you get things that are a little more visually distinctive and a little more authorial, basically. Yeah. Like, are you guys watching American Gods? No, I just got the book because I hear it's amazing and I want to yeah. read it. And, yeah, yeah. Well, is it a comedy? No, no, no. American Gods is like a Neil Gaiman um, like show on stars. It's like it's supposed to be amazing. It's amazing, it? and it's like they go like super crazy macro shots. Everything is heavy, heavy style. Like Orin, you're gonna see the show and be like, "Oh, this is the show I want to do." And I'm curious. I just just finished the pilot last night, and I was like, "Oh, I wonder how many directors they have on the series because it's so." Heavy on that style. Did you look it up? I know. You know what? I should do it right now, actually. I'm curious. So there's, a, there's an app. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> IMDb. IMDb right now. Um, Let's see here. But like, you know, Mr. like. Mr. Robot 2 is also. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I love how they frame. And again, it's experimenting with how do you tell a story. Like, no one's bothered by that. You just kind of get into that. That's how it is. Yeah. Well, that's Maybe. one of those things. I mean, I always talk about like, I. I've tried framing like that before, and then people are like, "Oh, that's weird," and then I stop doing it. You know? Yeah, um, no, because it, it's about commitment. It's you commitment, know, and it has to be confidence. nonstop. I agree. I've tried to do like little dissolve cuts and try. You know, yeah. We had a big fight in Secret Girlfriend because I we cut out of a joke. It was like halfway through a sentence. He was starting to do another line, and mm-hmm. we just cut out to commercial because it just it made us laugh, and it was unimportant what he was about <laughs> right. to say. It was instead of like the like the look. Right, right. Cut. It was yeah. more like he did the look and then started to go into something else and yeah. we went out and it was such a fight. And I was like, oh, for God's sakes, we're already doing a POV show. Let, let this be part of the language. You don't know when we're going to cut out and when we're going to come in. Like, you don't know exactly what the typical slice of story we're going to tell, which is so routine. Like, right. Man, but I mean, that's not the right platform for, you know, we're doing a teenage horn dog show. All of a sudden, we're <laughs> trying to become Mr. Robot. You know? 
you know, so you got to know you <laughs> went to fight that. Yeah, it does sound funny. I do wonder if, if you made that show now, if it would be a little more acceptable to break the rules. Well, it's it, it, look, it also, that show, it was Comedy Central. They wanted to do something for young men. The jokes were more bro-y than... I, I, that's not my thing. So you get pushed into these other areas where you're doing different things. And already it was happy to be at POV. And if we did right. a second season, it was not going to be POV. Oh, really? Yeah, that was like part of the thing. And you're like, oh, fine. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, yeah. sure. I guess we're just making a regular old horn dog comedy yeah, now. Yeah, we're just a big show. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And, and you know, your manager and agent's like, just do it. Just do <laughs> yeah. it. It's good. You're yeah, like, yeah. And that's, that's the realistic fights you end up having. You know, it's fascinating. You always hear about the guys who were iconoclasts and they stuck it out and then they, they, sure. their number came up. And that's, yeah, you should do that. You should do what you believe in and you make, no question. But you don't hear about the other people <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> who stuck to their guns and you never heard from yeah, them yeah. again because yeah. you do have to play ball to a certain extent and that's just the deal. And you hope that you have the combination elements come together in a nice way, but sometimes they don't. And yeah. uh, that's the deal. I'm right. always curious about those iconoclasts. I'd love to just be a fly on the wall and like be in a network notes meeting and see what they really say, right? Because I wonder if maybe secretly they're just great at branding and diplomacy and that they do play ball more than any of us realize, right? I've been in a couple of, with a couple of people who... Sure. Uh, and... They, there definitely is, they set some walls up mm-hmm. where it's like, well, that's just what it's going to be. And if you're dealing with me, you're going to deal with that. Mm-hmm. And they just make that part of what you're buying. So they are able to right. carve out some space for them. Now, they also, you know, you're going to get your shows. Generally, they have something of a track record. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're, sure. they're playing with some chips that yeah. allow them that. Right. Um, and you have to have that. I think that's like the main thing. Uh, you know, Mitch Hurwitz had already been writing for years and years sure. with, with the rest of Development. He carved out his Golden space. Girls, so good, you yeah, guys. Yeah, right. So, I mean, <laughs> he didn't come up from nowhere. Right. So it's not like right. he's just All those guys, man. like Mad Men, you know, Michael Wiener and sure. uh, Vince Gilligan, like those guys were established been doing this writers for yeah, years. before they yeah. broke the mold. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's the classic Picasso. We know the mold, then break the mold. Um, so Right. So before we finish... Uh, I just wanted to ask like a couple things. One, and they're kind of unrelated, unfortunately. Number one is like when you're on set and a, you know there's a joke is happening and it's like clear that it's not working, like what are some ways that you've seen directors like handle that? Or does, does that happen? I mean, I know you work with these like amazing actors. Yeah, it does. I mean, sometimes it's just not happening. So sometimes um, you'll just try and restage it. You try and figure out what's, the source of it. It's, it's, it's rarely the performance. Usually there's something wrong with the setup or mm-hmm. just like the assumption of why this was going to be funny isn't quite right. So sometimes you just got to rewrite it on set with the writer. But it's rarely like, oh, it's just straight up flat. It's just, it's just your lead-in wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of times the physical gag, what was visualized or written just can't be done Quite right. exactly what they're yeah. talking about. It's a joke on the page and not on the screen. Yeah, like yeah. you read it, you're like, oh, that'd be amazing. They're like, okay, but how do we make that really and make it look natural and not phony? And that's where it gets tough. Right. I think of Modern Family, like Phil Dunphy is always doing all this crazy physical comedy, but like 
how does it how does it work every time? Like he just must be a really amazing physical comedian. Yeah, and by now they know what how to, to give him what to write, which which is why first season shows are tough because you don't know what people can do and what they're good at, what they're not good at, who's good to pair people with, um, which is really important for comedy. So, but like yeah, big psych eggs are oh my, like I have yeah, a couple coming up this yeah. season. I'm I'm just like. This is, you know, like, it's like 20 <laughs> elements and it has to build and the only when mm-hmm. it really happens and you cut it, you'll go like, oh, yeah, or nah, that was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I think, part of my frustration with, I mean, Matt and I do so many things that are like one or two day shoots and you don't know your actors, you don't know anything, you meet them on the day of the shoot and then you want them to do something that's really funny on the page and then it's just not that funny right. or doesn't look that great. Or, and, and there's no room for I told you so or pickups or anything. You well, know. do you find sometimes it's it's with the the actors you've been, you have to use just because of the nature of the shoots? Or? Uh, for me, most of the time, it's really that a writer doesn't understand that it's not actually visual, right? Mm-hmm. That it's a it's it's for the page and it's not. It's right. it is and it's funny on the page, but they're connecting too many dots, right, 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 uh, which you can spell out when it's written down. But like when it's visually, like an actor can't be like, well, the thing that I'm holding is actually a callback to the other thing, and then yeah, you yeah. know, you know, and how long to linger on a thing that's mm-hmm, a callback right. that's not too hammy and yeah, there's a lot of like in jokes on the script and the script. Like, because a lot of people like the Arrested Development thing, where you're like layering and pre-jokes and all mm-hmm, that. But like right. most of that, just it just doesn't play. You just yeah. don't notice it. And if you do, good for you. But right. th- that's not you can't build around that. That's just got to be. That's layering. why Arrested Development was so incredible. Is that it's kind of the best example of that sort of layering actually working. Yeah. And it's because they had a joke for the super fans and for someone who's paying attention and then for someone who's just walking by and all at the same time. And they also have a ton of voiceover that I'm assuming some was rewritten in oh, post sure, yeah. to make those jokes land. Like one of the funniest jokes I, I think of like the whole show is uh, when Portia de Rossi thinks that Sacramento is called Sacramenti <laughs> and the voiceover is like, a quick Google search <laughs> you know, brings up, did you mean Sacramento? I especially uh, love that being from Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's like, those joke. are things that on set aren't funny, but in the edit are like so funny. Uh, well, and by the way, that show, talking about like director's impact, you know, because that's how I met Paul Feig and, and all these other fantastic directors. By the second, third season, we barely had the actors moving because so much was going to be made in editorial mm-hmm. and recut that mm-hmm. if you had them move in the scene, they would jump around. So right. it became very multicam in terms of how we did it, which was where Mitch was from. And that's not a knock on it. It's just that's what it needed to be because right. they were long scripts with a lot of dense material and, and you needed to figure things out afterwards for them. So. Right. I just worked on this thing that it was supposed to be about 45 seconds and we had like a really funny actor, but it was scripted like he takes a notepad and he draws this picture real quick and he reveals it to the camera and it's this amazingly beautiful, highly detailed picture of what he said he was going to draw, which, whatever, the joke is a little bit like from 1920s, but whatever, we'll, we'll do it. But when he revealed the picture, it was like so intricate and so complicated, you know, oh, so fancy. Oh, that it doesn't read. That you have to look at it yeah. for like 10 seconds to understand yeah, what register. you're looking at. Yeah. yeah. And they in the edit, they're like, "Well, this whole thing needs to be forty-five seconds. The network wants it to be really fast, so right. <laughs> it just doesn't work." And I'm like, "Might as well just cut that entire part out because yeah. it doesn't read." And when it's very easy to write, like he draws a picture, it, it's amazingly yeah. beautiful. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's impossibly uh, detailed. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's a perfect example. So yeah. 
Anyway, so my other question for you, which you kind of touched on a little bit, is like, is there in comedy any sort of like traditional way to cover a scene, like uh, planning coverage? Uh, like sure. I mean, wide, <laughs> wide <laughs> master, <laughs> mediums. Clo- you know, you don't go too close. Most comedy shows, you don't go too close because you want to see the the body language. It's important for the comedy. So, uh, you want to play things in two shots if people are interacting. So generally, you want to be wider. I don't go. We don't usually go too close unless it's it's a particularly joke shot. But really, that's why so many sh- shows shoot with uh, two cameras or even three cameras now and just do overs, mm-hmm. so they can improv and you get all the takes. Um, so you do a lot of that. What about a show like Casual? That's probably a little more. And that's two cameras also. Um, th- th- we we will take some more liberties in terms of sort of the overall shots. Although last season also, it's just. We, we won't cross cover, but it's really mediums, and again, you'll get close, but it's really a lot if you get close. And right now, it's a very realistic aesthetic. Mm-hmm. People don't like to get too dramatic with stuff. I mean, even push-ins on most shows are not really looked at. That's really? like too heavy-handed. Well, what about, how do you come into a scene? You don't, it used you to be do you light, do a dolly. You can do light push-in or something, but just in general, unmotivated motion is, is just, you know... So you'll come in if someone's moving. Mm-hmm. There's always a, a little bit of that at the beginning, but generally people are, are kind of shying away from unmotivated movement. They're scared by that. And what about mm-hmm. transitioning from scene to scene? Is that something that directors are? Yeah, that's important. I think directors have to think about that. That's, I mean, you, the problem is you don't know how they're going to cut it, <laughs> so you have to you offer up options. You know, you don't want to get too stylized. I've seen that where people like it really clever. Mm-hmm. Like, like a tilt up to a tilt up type of thing. Yeah, yeah like like a, a lot like of cute stuff. Yeah, you know, if you look at like uh, shows like Blackish or most network shows, like they'll do a little sequence at the end. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was Scrubs did that every single episode, right? Where you go like left to right, one scene right, to the right, next right, scene right. to the next scene, and that's fine. You know, that, stuff like that's fine. Um, but uh, just having a little transition, just so it's not boring, going from shot to shot, just a little yeah. zhuzh is something a director should bring, because you can bring that. That's what you should bring, is a little spice to the, the Right. I've found that a lot of young directors, they come from this auteur background, or maybe it's film school, mm-hmm. or maybe it's just what they think a director's supposed to do, which is Probably they, all of the above. All of yeah. the above, because yeah. I, I, I taught a little bit at like LA Film School in New York Film School. They, like, they read a scene, and then they shot list it, and it's like, that's what I'm going to do. And really... When you get out there, you block the scene with the actors and see what works and what's mm-hmm. natural. And then you see what pieces you need. And then you yeah. come up with pieces. Now, that's not to say you don't have a transition, you don't have right. an overall stylistic view, of course. But work backwards from what works in the scene. Don't like previs things like you're doing the Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's not, in most cases, you don't sure. need that. You just got to find not the authenticity. TV comedy directing. TV and yeah. not even independent film stuff, like to a large extent, where you're, you still have a lot of time. It's, it, it, constraints, figure out how to make what's real. Like what drives me crazy, I was watching Quantico or something, yeah. which was awesome. <laughs> my wife and I was staring at it like, what? This is, a t-. they had a scene with a crazy, this guy was packing, moving, and he was just walking back and forth, like moving a shirt onto different boxes. <laughs> my wife and I were both watching, not talking about it, and then we were like, are you watching this guy just yeah. like not do any realistic action here? Yeah, yeah. And it's like way too many boxes. It's just like whatever they were thinking, just make There's, it realistic and make it messy and weird. And people sometimes 
don't do the exact right. thing. So try and try and make it so it's a real space. There's and, that John Mulaney joke about Law and Order about like how there's all the different tropes, and one is the dock worker who will be approached by the murder police but won't stop unloading that, boxes. Were you just listening to this on Comedy Central Radio? No, probably no. Oh, that's so just, funny. I just heard that this bit is so, it, over that here. bit is so, so good. good. It's, it's so, so good. good. It's on Mulaney's first album. Oh so man, good. love it. Anyway, yeah, maybe that's my endorsement. Well, cool. Well, thanks so much for coming and talking to sure. us. Sure. Yeah, you, know, you live pleasure. on the west side. You came. Oh to man, the east side. Oh, thank you God. so much. It's a tough, tough trip. Very tough. But he is True, shooting is. in the valley, so it wasn't that bad. Oh, good. That's nice. <laughs> cool. Well, we saved you some time in traffic. Then I hope. Yeah. No, it was great, and I only uh, almost killed one skateboarder. On the way. <laughs> I actually hit a guy with my car. Oh man, broke his skateboard. He's okay. <laughs> This is the true story. Wow. True. So uh, I hadn't hit a man before, and I gotta say, I feel alive. Yeah, like, I feel really like sure. Ross is starting a fight club for people <laughs> right. in cars. Yeah, just to drive in skateboarders. Yeah. It's yeah. a very safe fight club. Yeah, yeah, sure. Super fun. So, uh, so yeah. So we usually we end our show with a segment called Unpaid Endorsements. Yes. Unpaid endorsements. Yeah. So I just worked uh, with this DP, Carl Hersey, who's. He shoots Last Man on Earth. Um, and Matt Enloe's foul ball. Matt Enloe's foul ball and Nathan <laughs> for You. Right Matt's, before he, he took off, basically. That's favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> I do love Nathan for You. Um, and uh, he had just pitched on a movie as a DP. You know, DPs, like directors, pitch like how they think a movie should look. And he showed me this website. He's like, oh yeah, whenever I pitch on a movie, I make a website for that movie. And I was like, you make a website for the movie? That sounds insane. And he's like, well, I have a Squarespace account. I just add a new page and I you know, title it the movie. So it's like carlhersey.com slash the name of the movie. And I send the link to it and it just looks really nice. And you can put in text and put in images. And as directors, especially for a lot of short form and commercial stuff, we're making treatments and pitch decks all the time. And you know, I used to use InDesign, and then I used Keynote, and some people use PowerPoint. But this website thing is just so easy. Squarespace just makes it beautiful, and you can just change the style of the page. Like it's a dark, you yeah, know, so horror movie. Be, Let's yeah. just click on the dark, you know, uh, style sheet or whatever. And the layouts are nice and clean. Like it's all very modular. It's so yeah. smart. So I'll post the. I probably I can't post the one I made, but maybe I'll if if I get a job. And it, uh, yeah. off of that, I'll post a link to it because it's really cool. I mean, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could make one for listeners. I was going to say, if you took out the actual text and just threw in Lorem Ipsum. Or, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I could do that. The movie is called Lorem Ipsum. It's oh, about, no. Um, it's about a typesetter <laughs> <laughs> that kills people with uh, those blocks, you know, that they put in the yeah, yeah. machine. It's a period piece. Um, <laughs> Ross, you got anything? Well, I got two things, really, and they're two different sides of the same coin. First thing is I'm a big uh, optimizer of information processing. I'm a big Timothy Ferris fan, 4-Hour Workweek, 4-Hour Body, even 4-Hour Chef, which got me into cooking. And he has a podcast, right? He does. I don't listen to it, but I read a lot of his books. And I think the he point has a is, TV show coming out soon as well. I think so. Yeah, yeah he's... he's, he's He's going uh, a lot of places with his, <laughs> his little rap. With four hours, he you know he has yeah. a lot of careers. But uh, the uh, you know the four hour work week, any of those books, I just find what he's good is uh, a concept called the minimum effective dose, which is finding the the best amount of time, the best amount of effort to spend on something to get the most rewards, the uh, the most back, as opposed to once you pass that point, you get less and less mm-hmm, returns. Mm-hmm. And um, between that and the different time savers that he brings up, and he links to a lot of things, 
it's helped me data process a lot. You know, as a director or as an assistant director, you get a lot of information in. And one of the things you really got to be good at is not dropping anything mm-hmm. because that's the yeah. thing that can kill you. So uh, I'm very into data optimization, like to the point, like my wife knows, like I will not forget anything ever. I might have it on my to-do list for a month from now, but mm-hmm. I have it. Right. And yeah. part of that is also getting stuff out of your brain where it gives you stress and put it into a thing like OmniFocus or mm-hmm. uh, Omni... Um, yeah, yeah, OmniFocus. You know, OmniFocus, yeah, yeah. right. So I'm a big fan of OmniFocus, four-hour body. Anyway, so that's part one. Can you do, the, just real quick, four-hour work week, is that a thing? Like people, like... He basically works for four whole, hours a week. It's how to uh, sort of cut out the clutter. So it, it'll be a variety of things from like not responding to emails until the end of the day, or have autoresponders to just all of those things to optimize your time. I'm very into optimizing. I got a Fitbit. I'm into like constant feedback and improving. So that leads to the second thing I'm going to recommend, which is the five minute journal. I can't meditate. I'm not good at it. I don't like it. A lot of good directors I work with do do it. I can nap at lunch. I can't meditate. It's just, I get antsy. I can't do yoga. I just don't like sitting there. But the five-minute journal is this thing, which came from Ferris, where every day you just write like just some nice little basic, like, mm-hmm. what would be nice today? What am I thankful for? Little gratitude things, real new age bullshit. But I got to say, I've been doing it a month and a half, and it's been really nice, and it makes you just gracious for what you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It tells you what to look forward to in the day. Usually it's like something to really, like inevitably you look forward to writing something, mm-hmm. doing something, something that will make the day memorable, not just f- doing the usual running right. around doing bullshit. And to me that's what's valuable is focusing like, hey, I'd like to write today. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'd like to shoot something today. So it helps reorient you in a, in a way that's both pleasant and also focused. Yeah. And you do it in the morning? You do it in the morning and the evening. And it, it's literally just one page each day. Right. You do it on paper? It's paper, pen and paper. But you don't do it in bed. I do it in bed. Yeah, it lays yeah. right by my bed. Yeah. But I got to say, for some reason, uh, it's had, life is very difficult. You get a lot of ups and downs. It's sure. been very, made me very, uh, have a lot of gratitude for what you have. When we first got married, my wife had a, a five-year version of that. And so it was... It had like five slots on each page uh-huh. for every day of the year, so you would go through it uh, every single time, and it became really special. To like after a couple of years, she'd be like, "Oh, like on this day a year ago, and two years ago, and three years mm-hmm. ago, this is what was happening." And it really, it's that same quality that you're talking about of like it's meditative, it's real quick. They're you know, it's like an inch and a half worth of space, so you yeah. just jot down, you know, whatever you're grateful and for, they have or whatever. So it's yeah. like it couldn't be easier. There's oh, no yeah. thinking. So it's something yeah. you buy. Yeah, like yeah and, and it's one of those like, why do I need to buy this? It's just the same page over paper. and yeah, over. Yeah, sure. Like, this is stupid. Yeah. But you need it. You need, I mean, you need, if you're going to do it, to right. do it that way. You're not going to do need, it in your own book. You need the book on and your yeah, nightstand. Yeah, the memories, it's, yeah. it's funny. You look back. And, oh, so, but your, your first thing, you have to get to the set early. Yeah. So if you have to, if your call time is like 6.30 a.m., when do you do this? Well, I haven't done it during shooting yet. Okay. <laughs> I've been in prep. But, uh, you know, I, I, you always have time. You always have time for that stuff. It's, five, it's literally like five minutes, two minutes, three minutes. Just yeah. Wouldn't it be funny, minutes. like a guy that has like just 85 different of these like five minute things. <laughs> it's like they yeah. spend half their day just doing these like real quick things and yeah. just like kind of optimize their day. <laughs> well, it's funny. You do read some of these books and you go, how much optimization can you do? Where <laughs> yeah, it's sure. like I'm working on this and this. And every time like I get a, uh, you get a new appliance, you go, well, you should check it out every six. If you just... Yeah. Maintained and optimized everything all day, you'd right. have no life. There'd be nothing. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. 
Well, cool, awesome. Cool. Yeah, Thanks. well, uh, my unpaid endorsement is a, a movie called Wiener. Have you guys seen this movie, the documentary? Oh, about Anthony, about oh, Anthony I've Wiener. I've heard of it. I, it is so incredible. So the show I'm working on is a mockumentary, and I was trying to think of like real documentaries to pull from. And like it's about uh, you know these people who are you know, egomaniacs and stuff. And uh, so I kind of revisited the movie. It's incredible, you guys. It's like, uh, it takes place right after this first scandal has broken. He's right. fallen from grace and they think that they're recording his comeback tour. Right. And it's, he runs for mayor and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah, he's running yeah. for mayor. Um, and, you know, like the Hillary campaign is just sort of really gearing up. His wife is like her number one person, you know. Um, that's my one criticism is that you could, you want more humor. Mm-hmm. Huma, that's how you say it, right? Huma? Huma. We call her Big H. Huma. There we go. Um, it's incredible to watch because, like, he's a man who, in the beginning, you're like, oh, man, like, he really is a talented politician. Mm. You know, like, he's great at speeches. He really excites people and he believes in what he's saying. So then he's just got this compulsion for self destruction that you watch over and over again. And then he's still connected to these cameras. He like he keeps the cameras rolling for so much longer than a sane person would. Right. And like at the end of the movie has these kind of incredible confessionals and it's, it really is frank about like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't know why I'm letting you into my life. And it's it's a really incredible movie. And and like Weirdly entertaining. Sure. You know, he's so charismatic that like yeah. it's it's a magnetic experience. It's really fascinating. Have you seen the Spitzer documentary? No. It's a similar story. So Oh, interesting. Yeah. Same kind of thing where a genius, you know, guy sky's the limit and he's like, What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Oh man. I gotta see that. Yeah, um, no, I'll check that out. Yeah, I think it may be on Amazon. If it okay. is, it'll be in the show notes. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks, Russ. Thank yeah, you. How can people me. find out more about you? Do you have a website, a Twitter handle? A uh, I'm off social anything? media for a little while, uh, which has been nice. Congrats. Thank you. It feels yeah. good. Um, no, so no, there's no way to find me. And I don't need you to find me. And who are these people? I don't Any need, projects I, I should be looking out for? I've got a family that's rewarding. I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm working on Those Who Can't this summer, and I'm writing right. an episode there. And uh, All right. Do you know which number it'll be? No, we're, we're setting the uh, schedule now. So. Okay. Well, you can learn uh, more about the show at JustShootItPod.com. You can follow us on Twitter at JustShootItPod. Uh, and me at Mr. Madalo. And me at SmiteyPileg. And uh, send us an email at JustShootItPod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. If you can rate us on iTunes and leave a review... That would be really, really awesome. and It'll help us uh, make more episodes. We'll read your reviews on the air, which is so fun. Trust me, you'll really love oh, yeah. it. We keep saying that we'll do that, but we have yet to do it. No, we've done it. We just haven't oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. episode yet. You're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do that. Um, okay, well, thanks, guys. Uh, this uh, episode features music from the new music. Free music, the free archive. music archive. And the artist, Jazar. Jazar. Bye, guys. Bye. Right. <laughs>